running now, huh? Okay, fine. We are now on the air. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Bone Ditch by Ian Bird. As ever, if you want to know more, please visit our website, which is www.boneditch.wordpress.com. But you're here now, and I'm not, because I haven't finished the latest story. So instead of giving you the next and final part of Chapter 2 of Bone Ditch, I'm giving you a story called What Does John Welt Keep Under His Bed? The astounding, surprising, halo-afflicted truth was that John Welt would never be accused by anyone of having strayed from the well-travelled cross-global highway of conventionality. As per prediction spread since his childhood, his life had seemingly become an everyday non-alcoholic cocktail, a two-parts humdrum to a dash of normality traipsed through a landscape already discovered and rendered all too familiar by postcards and trivial TV travel programmes. His world had no tourists because everyone had already moved there a long time before and these days no one had a good word to say for any place else. He was born in a land where starvation meant having to the time to wonder where your dinner was and Warzone was the name of a video game you played when you got back at one in the morning from the pub. From the time he was five minutes old, he was already ahead of the game. But had you been on the streets of Coffs Harbour, that disreputable little borough of London where sophistication buys seedy a drink in exchange for his sister's telephone number, you would have seen this Mr Nobody himself braving drizzle and 17 individual shades of grey to walk the market. It was the 13th of May, some five years ago. You would have seen him, unshaven and still a little giddy from the night before, handing over a sum of money in exchange for a large wooden casket reinforced with thick brass strips and straps. The kind of casket you lock with a huge padlock and leave under the sea to be discovered by scuba divers and picturesque sharks. The kind of casket you would quite comfortably be able to store a woman's severed arm in if that was your particular requirement. It is worth noting at this point that John Welt has never owned anything of any value. So the purchase of what can only be described as a treasure chest seems a little incongruous, a little surprising, suspicious. What would a man like John Welt keep in a box like that? John Welt took the box back to his flat and kept it under his bed. It never gathered any dust. As is usual for a life as average and been there done that as John Welts, it blazed by in moments. If you were slumped in front of the television set watching his life story, you'd have reached the first advert break and he'd already be in his late twenties. You'd also be making plans to have plans in case you were alone with the television again the same time next week. Or at least, that was what everyone thought. What does John Welt keep under his bed? The casually average man is rarely physically examined all over by a doctor. The casually average man rarely bothered himself to check every square inch of his body. The casually average man is rarely studied in all his naked splendour by anyone, sadly. The casually average man rarely keeps parts of himself under his bed and locked away in a treasure chest. In spite of the efforts I have taken to depict John Wells as a picture of practice normality and a modest master of the mundane, I have to point out at this juncture that John Welt is not entirely casually average. There he is now, leaning on a bar somewhere in the city. He is chatting with his friends, laughing in fact and having a good time. He is drinking a cocktail and he looks just like you. It took little John Welt ten years to realise that there was a scrap of extraneous skin in the small of his back. A couple of years later, just as his peers were noticing the onset of peculiar dreams and the increasing density of hitherto pointless sacks of flesh secreted away in the darkest shadows of their bodies, John found it difficult to sit down without catching his breath in treacherous pain. Because at the small of his back, fleshier and denser than ever before, there was now a tiny squirrel of meat. At night he would hold it in a guilty hand, 
twisting it around his fingers, tugging at the root that pulled at his pelvis. It didn't occur to him to consider that this anatomical atavism might not be a universal feature of human physiology until his 15th birthday. He didn't realise that the inaugural meeting of the Freaks Like Me Society could comfortably be held in his bathtub until he was 15 years and one day old. Yes, that was an unpleasant day. The very next night, sweaty and delirious, with both shame and some twisted cocktail culled from his parents' post-Christmas alcohol reserves, John Welt took his fleshy curl in one hand and a knife in the other, and after a few minutes of scratching and slashing, he made sure that he would always be confused with every other body on the planet for the rest of his life. It didn't take long for the bleeding to stop, and he was surprised at how natural it felt to pop that twist of skin and meat into his mouth and chew it down to its elemental proteins and carbohydrates before drifting off into a dreamless everyday sleep. No one else would ever know how close John Welt had come to being exceptional. Or would they? What does John Welt keep under his bed? The bloody stump scabbed over, then flaked away into a white blur of what once was. John's day of doubt eventually became just a lurking thing of the shadowy past. He was one of the boys all over again. Time passed, he hardly missed it. It was only when he awoke one morning after thick, fleshy dreams to discover a foot's length of meat, the thickness of his index finger, wrapped around his left thigh, that he realised that some people can only ever aspire to normality. He had an unexpected feeling in this new protuberance, but apparently very little control. It would twitch, attempt to curl itself around things, sometimes even scratch at itches that were within its sordid reach. When he was at home in his room, it was less of a problem. He would untuck this profane atavism and let the blind, wormy appendage swish and flex in the air. But at school, the throwback thing was a monster, aching in his trousers, leaving bulges where modesty demanded a smooth and unremarkable terrain. He felt every inch a filthy freak. No one could know his secret, could be allowed to even suspect the awful truth. John Welt was prepared to go to horrible lengths to hide his horrible length. His life became a shadowy and solitary length of time, and in his heart he knew that throughout this awful, quiet time he was simply preparing himself, slowly building the courage to commit the unthinkable all over again. The pinkness of the hateful thing didn't help enamour it to him. The skin on the shaft was coarser than on most other parts of his body, but it was of the same pale pink hue, horribly familiar, unmistakably him. Tiny white hairs dotted the length of it. It was a rat's tail. John Welt knew it. There was something ancient and verminous down deep inside him. As he waited for his courage to build, he found himself strangely fascinated with his deformity. It seemed to have a life of its own, surprising and enlightening. For example, blood would pump furiously into it, filling it with strength and vigour when he became excited. When expectant, even of an intellectual reward, for John was very scholarly in his own way, this base monstrosity would flicker and shudder, exploiting the delicate sensitivity of that part of his body. Conversely, when apprehensive or afraid, it seemed capable of becoming a leaden length of ice, shrunken and immobile, but pulsing with an aching numb pain. In short, its movements were suddenly instinctive and inevitably honest, acting according to a system of body language that was harder to repress than, for example, that of his own face. John knew that he had to act, had to purge himself of this vestigial honesty. Even in these early days, he foresaw a horrible dawn when he would be no better than a dog, signposting his innermost thoughts and feelings through the guileless thrashings of a length of prehistoric flesh. John was smart and capable, but he knew that he would also need to be able to rely on deception and intrigue in order to succeed in the modern world. No good having a poker face and wagging tail, both. He needed courage, a rare trait that he hoped he would uncover and be able to rely upon. He needed relentless dread terror of the secrets of his own body, a facility he knew only too well could be successfully tapped. 
he needed some degree of medical wherewithal and competence. Ah well. It came down to, just as before, a drunken knight, a wad of bandages and a sharp knife. John knew that there was no bone in his tail, but suspected that there might be more than a fair share of blood in there instead. Naked and streaming with a sweat so cold, his hand shook as he took the stem of his tail in his left hand and grasped the sticky plastic knife hilt in his right. The tail itself was cold and trembling in his fist. In a mirror he could see its tiny white hairs bristling, hackles raised. He ground together his teeth, something a shade between vodka and cough syrup swilling in his mouth, and began by nicking the skin that should never have been there in the first place. John Welt, back to counting himself among the normals, woke up stuck to the floor with something a shade between blood and vomit. His tail, somehow coiled neatly by his feet, was blue now, alien and dead. As John moved, a shooting pain erupted at the base of his spine that lit fireworks in his brain. It felt good. He was giddy with loss of blood. Although, of course, the blood wasn't really lost, he reminded himself, for he could count for every last drop. The tacky crap of his feet as he lifted them up off the crimson floor told him exactly what he was missing, and he found himself cradling his amputated atavism in his trembling arms in something approaching a dazed joy. Got to get some protein. Got to build myself back up. There is something touching about the logic of the bleeding and you may quote me on that. The problem inherent with sausages is that even the very finest specimens are invariably manufactured from the rankest offcuts of meat stuffed into the intestines of something very deservedly dead. No matter how attractive the taste, you're never going to forget the fact that you're cramming your face with the lips, ears, eyelids and rectums of beasts of the field. It's enough to make you a vegetarian. So imagine a sausage with all the juicy goodness of a really fresh steak. Then imagine that you know for a fact that the bloody root in question comes from the very healthiest source. No hidden viruses or bacteria there. You're eating free range as it was always meant to be. As succulent as any unimpeachable peach, dribbling with a thick fiery flavour of prime life, you are assured of your feast's pedigree as no other diner in culinary history ever was. Now imagine yourself standing at the frying pan, salivating as the seductive scent of yourself on fire reaches you, and imagine being untouched by horror as you stare at your own blood boiling away into gravy. God, it's so natural. John Welch enjoyed a breakfast that morning that no one else in the world had ever savoured. He chewed the tender meat and sucked back the red juices. He swallowed down thick round slice after thick round slice. He dabbed at the blood that swam in his plate with a chunk of bread and read his newspaper, only occasionally wincing with surprised pain. He wasn't the first person in the world to realise that the purest pain is the pain of absence, but perhaps he was the first to feel that familiar fiery ache in exactly this form. That morning at university he had to give a talk on Victorian children's literature. Invigorated and all too ready to wrestle the day into submission, he prepared his notes for his paper and wandered into class with a spring in his step, but a limp in his leap. The door flew open and in he ran, that great long red leg scissor man. With Hoffman's invocation hanging in the classroom air, John pushed the next sheet onto the overhead projector. The original sketch of his dreaded bogeyman incarnate, a slender hawk-nosed giant dressed to the nines and armed to the teeth, savage scissor blades flashing in his grip. Little Conrad Suckathumb stares up at his unleashed demon in disbelief. He continued to quote, Snip, snap, snip, they go so fast that both his thumbs are off at last. The next picture is of little Conrad brandishing his weeping stumps as mother looks on bearing all the comfort of a February storm at midnight. John continued his lecture. 
The story of Little Sucker Thumb is Hoffman's utter triumph. It's as brutal and coldly intelligent as any other lesson in Strulpater, but it also offers a style and melodrama that underline the so-called moral of the story with an unforgettable and unmatched theatricality. It has the Scissorman himself, as horribly inevitable as any other demon in literature. The Scissorman is tremendously effective and marvellously underused. What an imagination to create this figure and then never return to him, and how brilliantly that underuse highlights and emphasises the impression he makes. His singular purpose in the story gives him an iconic grandeur, but without further definition he also maintains a certain ambiguity that fuels his effect in other directions. At face value, he is mother's avenging arm, simply punishing the little boy for sucking his thumb. But in this story of parental discipline, surely he is also the father figure, carrying out mother's bloody punishments to keep their child wholesome and decent. A strange father, though. This scissorman is a fop, a dandyish, skeletal creature carrying with him decidedly little masculinity. He is rigorously potent, but not in the traditional male fashion. In this way, maybe he represents a different kind of sexuality. And of course, once this idea of sexuality is broached, the true nature of little Conrad's wounds become apparent. When left all alone in the family home, what does little pubescent Conrad want to do more than anything else? Anyone who still believes that this story is about sucking your thumb clearly needs to get out of the house more, or rather, needs to stay in the bathroom more. A merry sprinkling of laughter crossed the lecture hall as John's joke sank in. It is tempting to see this as a man as a castrating avenger, sort of Onan the Barbarian, but it's also rewarding to see this as a Darwinian fairy tale. As a prime example of Victoriana, Strulpater is as susceptible to Darwin as it is to Freud. With the Beagle's voyages complete, we were just starting to appreciate the physical differences we humans shared, which made us special, those features which set us above the animals, and the ultimate example of this has to be our opposable thumbs. In the new scientific Darwinian world, it isn't enough to assume the existence of a soul in order to assure our superiority over the hoof and herd. We need physical proof. So remove our thumbs and we become less than human. John paused, his stomach crammed and churning with undigested meat. We become throwbacks, animals. Such a deformity would make us simple beasts, nothing more. Unacceptable to modern society. Surely this is the most awful punishment we could face. John paused, listening to the burn at the base of his spine, listening to the scrape of scissor blade against scissor blade, skin being torn, animal becoming man and man becoming animal. The blood rushed from his head and he felt a warm, wet flow from the vestiges of his vestigial. It was not pleasant and he began to feel faint. A face from the class stared intently at him. It helpfully pointed to the front row of his teeth in sympathy. Um, uh, Mr Welt, I think you've got something caught between your... John Welt ran from the room, his tail between his teeth. On his knees, wrapped around a toilet bowl, his mouth full of the gagged meat that had been him not very long before. Blood framing his teeth, pink foam trailing from the corners of a contorted mouth, John Welt stared at his reflection in the flesh-filled bowl. I don't think that you're normal, John. I don't think that you're normal at all. But that was as bad as it got for a long, long time. It would be easier to take if John Welt were a bad sort but he wasn't. In everything he tried his best, and in most everything he tried to be kind and decent, failing only rarely. He was possibly a good friend, occasionally a generous lover, generally a better-than-average human being. He probably didn't deserve that scar at the base of his spine. Considering this, the peaceful time that passed from that morning in the toilet to that afternoon in the gym changing room several months later was well-deserved and something of a blessing. Things John Welt did not want to overhear in the gym changing rooms two years later. Jesus, don't shave it off, it'll only grow back thicker. He's right, you should see my sister's back. Dude, everyone's seen your sister's back. Like a rug, man, it's like a rug. 
The body is a wonderful thing, but in its own way, as scientifically illiterate and thoughtless as the average man on the street. The headaches that send you scurrying for shadows, but that medically don't exist. The capacity for waifs to stare at a reflection and see some gargantuan thing peer back at them. I could go on. Pain. Don't get me started on pain. We feel pain when our bodies want us to stay very still and very quiet while they repair ourselves. This is a physical facility that has been in operation for all the countless millennia of human history and prehistory. It's easy to shirk off a virus when you're not expending energy playing tennis or compiling a spreadsheet. Yes, that's fair enough, but really, isn't that something we should already know by now? When we get the flu, do we really need the chilling ache of misery and gland-pulsing suffering to remind us to go to bed with plenty of vitamin C? After all those years of evolution, you would think that a species as superficially intelligent as our own would have learned to take our body's word for it by now and lay off the overexertion in times of illness and injury, to go with the flow. But no, nature insists on the body fine-tuning its nervous system with a sledgehammer just so that it's sure we get the point. All those million years of years of evolution and still the best way of warning us about something so simple is to light us up with pain. I sometimes wonder who it is that's holding up the evolutionary leap. Who refuses to stay still and quiet when they're ill or injured, subjecting the rest of the human race to pain and suffering while we sprain an ankle or catch a cold? I say we find and kill those people. But I digress. The body and its capacity for random acts of unexpected and unrational hormonal hell would never cease to amaze John Wilt. Not two weeks after overhearing that conversation in the changing room, John felt an unusual stirring in his nethers, a stirring he'd only felt twice before. Within a week, there was something undeniably canine hanging between his legs. Thick and muscular, bristling with dark fur, the new addition to his life was more brutish and less human than either of its predecessors. Animal. It didn't have the flexibility of the rat tail. This appendage was less keen to perform tricks. Each day he had to strap it to his left leg, in doing so putting a nervous electrical pressure on the bottom of his spine that made him snappish and quicker to cruelty. He hardly ever left his digs more than was absolutely necessary, preferring to haunt his own territory, free tail slowly swishing in the end to some prehistoric bestial beat. He was becoming tenser, he was losing control. He began to suspect that there was bone in this tail, that he might even require help in the inevitable forthcoming amputation. God, what if he got rid of this tail, only for it to grow back even thicker, even more brutish? There was hair on this one. What if the fur began to spread further up his back, meeting at his nape, turning him into some predatory thing? The taste of his own meat in his mouth excited him, repelled him and haunted him. It started to occur to him that maybe it had not been natural to eat his own tail. Wasn't that what mad dogs did? He remembered the Ouroboros, a snake doomed to spend its life attempting to swallow its own tail. He must refuse that doomed future, every few years growing a new tail, eating it and watching it grow back. For the billionth time in his life he weighed the frantic possibility that everyone did this, that we were all quietly eating our own throwback appendages, hoping that our family and friends wouldn't ever find out the awful truth. His tail curled between his legs, quivering in sympathy to his own fear. John Welt doubted that this was the case. But the pattern was becoming clear. Perhaps as he ate the tail he was recycling its constituents, providing his bloody stump with the fuel to return. At the very least he would need a bigger knife. They met up that night, appropriately enough, over cocktails. He was knocking back margaritas, she was sipping a Long Island iced tea. If there were words in the English language more capable of producing such joyful expectation as bring me another pitcher of margaritas, John Welt couldn't imagine them. The decadent salt, the invigorating line, the sense of reassurance you get from pouring yourself another and another and another. 
When he imagined being fully grown and free to vent his every urge, he imagined making love in the afternoon to women with no surnames, and a cigarette in one hand and a margarita in the other. Like many of his ilk, John Welt considered mature adulthood to be the marriage of adolescent impulses with the economic freedom to afford them. In this way, he would always be happy. He had sort of made a career of moving from temporary job to temporary job, devoid of long-term ambition. John suspected he was simply searching the working world for the perfect cast of office characters to see him through this phase of Generation X transience. Beyond that, he occasionally suspected that he was in actual fact looking for the most attractive female cast of office characters to see him through this phase of having to work for a living. If this was the case, then he was doing remarkably well at the moment. He knew this girl from the office. Happy, earthy, devastatingly smart and blazing with blue-eyed fire. She was drunk, he had planned it that way, but somehow she was still in command of their little meeting. He found himself asking more questions than he was being asked and leaning in towards her to catch her every word. Damn it, she could drink as well. He forced himself to drop the lazier of his conversational anecdotes and plough on with the intelligent stuff. At least the margarita glass in his hand added to the sophisticated impression he was making, the vibe he was expressing. John, your elbow is in that puddle of margarita. They fell together through the streets that night, clamped to one another like conjoined twins that no one, not even the cleaver happy John Welt, had yet got around to severing. John's bright eyes somehow led him back to his flat, her tongue flickering in his mouth like some fledgling tail. Animal. Their eruption through his quiet territory was at once wholly welcome, yet also utterly alien. The two of them cackled wildly as they made a mockery of the practised order of John's world. Furniture was pushed aside and glass crashed to the floor. It may have been a carnal cliché, but it was John Welt's carnal cliché, and he was damned if he was going to let some misplaced superego stand off to one side and harumph loudly, glowering throughout. Yes, man no more. And if he had to be homo, how much more important that he be erectus than sapiens? John Welt wanted to embrace the animal for the first time in his life. He roared with joy, hugging bright eyes as she laughed in his face. They were together, as inevitably as the air was filled with a range of pheromone musks tested from the dawn of their race. Miraculously, they found the bed. His animal hands still had evolved talents enough to loosen clothing and hold flesh. He cupped her in his hands, her face, her throat, her waist, her bloody hell in heaven above. He held in his hands the soft, sleek mink of her own black tail. It slithered up through his grip, sliding over his bare skin, apparently oblivious to the slashed-open stare of despair that was hanging tattered from his face. "'What's the matter, dear heart?' she purred. "'Cat got your tongue?' His sophisticated mien was now somewhat the worse for wear. "'What the hell is this? What are you doing with this? What are you?' Unabashed, it continued to flicker across his body while her bright eyes burst into flame. "'It's just a reminder, really. I'm quite an old-fashioned girl.' She moved closer to him, moved the whole of her body closer to him. Her tail flowed lower, merely ghosting over him now, a living memory. It really isn't a problem, is it? His scar blazed with recognition. He tasted the blood long forgotten at the back of his mouth, between his teeth. He remembered what it had been like to walk differently from others. Now he could be different together. He summoned an expression that should never left the Serengeti. Bright eyes, let's see fur fly. He smiled right at him and he started laughing, different together. Then she started screaming. She leaped from him, then started screaming louder. Suddenly he was embarrassed by the noise, worried for the neighbours. Her spell has cracked and broken as her shrieking voice. What had happened to her? Her tail flailed before him, now twice as long as before. He gaped at the length, then shuddered with recognition and realisation crashed into his bedroom. He probably should have locked that chest under his bed. 
His amputated tail squirmed and coiled wildly around the girl's own tail, squeezing and creeping closer and closer. Unable to stop screaming, she lashed out at the alien appendage with her nails, but the tail just tightened further, intent on its own agenda. Then another shape darted from under her bed, and another, and another each tail more shaggy and furry than the last. They threw themselves at the sleek fur of Bright Eye's tail, gasping and grasping with delighted surprise. How, how many of you lured up here? You jealous, tailless freak! She stopped screaming long enough to punch John hard in the face and then jump from the bed. She scrambled for the door, disappearing into the night, and that was the last John Welt ever saw of his Catwoman. A shadow vanishing into other shadows, impossibly pursued by five years' worth of amputated tales. I just hate endings, murmured John Welt.